Hey everybody, thanks for coming to another episode of Adventures in Angular. I'm Aaron Frost, the show host, and today on our panel we have B-Love. Hey there. Brian, you're in uh, Poland. I'm in Poland, yeah, yeah. So we spent a couple days up in Gdansk, which was really cool, and then uh, we just trained down to Warsaw today. Oh, nice. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Pretty beautiful city, Warsaw. Ah, very beautiful, yeah, and good food. Yeah, pierogies. Mm. Gotta love it. You know, Mike Ladke and I, we have this real weird karaoke story. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm, so weird. I, I was like, we're definitely getting kidnapped tonight. Like, I, I was convinced. But uh, we survived. We survived. Wait, um, you're not going to tell us the story? Hold on, hold on. Well, I mean, it's like 1 a.m. And we're like, dude, karaoke. We got to do it. And I'm like, I'm too okay. tired. And Ladke convinces me. He's so, good at karaoke, too. He's dude, really good. He's real good. Yeah. He finds something on Yelp pretty close, so we jump in some Ubers and go over. And there's no, there's no karaoke bar. Like we're in a place without karaoke. So we start walking around this building, and I'm like, guys, this is this is the part of the movie where people get, you know, this is not good. We should get out because <laughs> this is a sketch neighborhood. Yeah. But we hear yeah. music, so we're like, well, maybe there's a karaoke bar inside of this apartment building. Anyway, we so we're like walking, and we can't even figure out how to get into the building. Finally, we get into the building. And, Anyway, we get in there, we sing karaoke for like four or five hours, and went home. So, wow, yeah, it was weird. Wow. It was weird. I, I was I was scared as we did it. I was scared as we walked in, but once we got in, we were good. Anyway, so you're in Poland, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. Most of the people I think in the Angular community are probably in London at this point, right? Angular Connect starts tomorrow, or was yeah. it already today? I mean, it's like, are you guys at like nine? You're nine p.m. It's T minus right. twelve hours. T minus twelve yeah. hours. So, yeah. All right. So that's our panel. No other panelists came. Jennifer's in a meeting. Alyssa's on vacation. Joe's at Angular Connect. Yep. But we have we have a guest who, I mean, honestly, he should probably be the host of this podcast. He's pretty amazing. Today's guest is Manfred Steyer. Manfred, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the people who don't know you? Hey. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, wait. Hold on. That's hold on. not Manfred. Hold on. Did someone <laughs> else show up? Yes. It's uh, me, John Papa. John the ghost. Papa's here. John Papa's here. <laughs> no, are you Microsoft, John? Uh, yeah. See. Si. See. Si. Shy. I didn't even see you join. Yeah, yeah, I joined. I joined. I just waited in the dark, lurking in the dark like the ghost that I am. He's always watching. <laughs> always watching. Always watching. So, hello. This is Shy from uh, testangular.com. Yay. Hello, everybody. Hi, Hi, Yeah. Uh, sorry. Continue. Yeah, Shai, thanks for coming, man. No problem. Yeah, glad you're here. Anyway, on to the guest. I'm sure, every, I mean, I know Brian and Shai, I know you guys have mad respect for Manfred as well, but Manfred, yeah. welcome to the show. Go ahead and introduce yourself, man. Yeah, the pleasure. I am Manfred. Hi. I'm doing a lot of trainings and consultancy regarding Angola, mostly in Austria, Germany, and the Switzerland, but... If I promise to behave, I am sometimes allowed to enter other countries, sometimes in Europe and sometimes in the US. And yeah, that's what I'm doing now. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You like show up at the border and they're like, Oi, are you gonna behave this time? And you're like, Yeah, I'll yeah, behave. <laughs> I'll behave. That's good. It doesn't hey. work for me. Shy, they how do you get into most countries, Shy? I just pretend I'm someone else. Yeah. yeah. Like, hi, I'm I'm John Papa. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, it is me. 
John the Papa. John the Papa. Yeah. Yeah, they'll let you in at that point. You get that many Twitter followers, they just let you in. Yeah, they check. I think when you get to the customs, they're like, uh, oh, you're good. Yeah, you're good. You're verified? Okay, you're, you could come. Yeah, exactly. You're verified? Yeah. I got the little blue circle. Yeah, All right. Show me your account. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've always really enjoyed working with Manfred. We worked together in the community for years, and he's been one of my favorite speakers in the community. In the last six months, though, I've been doing – a lot more ng upgrade stuff and consulting and his work around ngx build plus has made life like ridiculously easier by comparison so i've grown into even more of a manfred steyer fan over the last six when i already was i always you know, i always been. what about you brian oh i'm a huge fan Okay. Uh, and NGX Plus, uh, Build Plus is, is fantastic. Aaron, do you want to kind of describe for our audience what that is and, and what it does? So first of all, thanks for the nice words and the compliments about NGX Build Plus and so on. And uh, about NGX Build Plus, it is a way to extend how the CLI is doing its build. Perhaps you remember uh, NG Eject, which was this command which ejected from the CLI it was available within the first versions of the CLI. And after ejecting, you could mess around with the Webpack configuration. This is not possible anymore because the Angular team has good reasons to make us use the CLI as is without modifications. But sometimes, as you can imagine, it is really important to use some modifications to extend the build job. And so what NGX Build Plus is basically doing, it allows you to tweak the Webpack configuration. And for this, it provides two ways. The first way is to provide a partial Webpack configuration file. And this partial Webpack configuration file gets merged into the Webpack configuration file the CLI is using. That was the first way. And the second way is to provide a plugin. Plugin really sounds dramatically, but at the end of the day, this kind of plugin is just a file providing an object with free methods. And those free methods can mess around with the Webpack configuration and influence how the CLI is doing its build. So this is pretty much what NGX Build Plus is doing. And so it allows for some advanced use cases. If I'm not mistaken... In Angular 8, there was a new feature that came out called differential loading, and it allows me to kind of make a, a build for my like legacy users that are using IE, uh, or just kind of legacy browsers and then modern browser users. And, and it allows me to have kind of two builds running to, to serve two different types of browsers. Is that based on NGX Build Plus? Well, the prototype of it was based upon NGX Build Plus. Okay. Uh, I had some time back then, and I have seen that this other single-page application framework, beginning with a V, had implemented this. And as it is open source, I looked it up and I figured out, hey, I can re-implement this with an NGX Build Plus plugin for Angular. And the current version, I helped to implement it is just baked into the CLI. It's now a part of the so-called builder, of the so-called Webpack builder that is doing the traditional CLI builds. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's awesome. That's, that's one of the cool new features from Angular 8. So mm -hmm. thanks for all the work you did on that, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really learned a lot. I really learned a lot when I worked with the CLI team on this for instance, I learned uh, how they are using Git. You can imagine when it comes to a big open source project, it is important to have nice Git messages, which was not always the case in uh, my former project. So it was really a nice experience to work together with them and to see how uh, they are using specific tools and the mindset they are following. Yeah, that's cool. You've been doing a lot in the community and Right now, you're kind of an expert around kind of Angular architecture. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a lot with architecture. So mainly, I'm helping big companies to substructure their big applications so that they are maintainable in long term or 
sustainable as you could say. Well, let's let's talk about that today. And I know I know Brian and Shy are both experts, and they consult and work on projects where we they have to deal with architectural. So let's let's kind of spend some time diving into that today. In the yeah, sounds great. So, cool. so Manfred, what are your like? What are your kind of main pain points around Angular architecture, or that you think we should kind of share with the community today? I think um, we have a lot of Angular applications out there that are not complicated, but complex. Complex in the sense of they are big and consist of a lot of entities and forms. If you have such a complex application, for instance, application which manages 800 entities, which uh, I have seen quite often in the area of enterprise development, we need to make sure that we can manage it in long term. We have to make sure that we don't have a lot of regression uh, where if we change something on the left side, something else on the right side gets damaged. In these cases, I help with some architectural ideas, ideas I'm borrowing from domain-driven design or ideas I'm borrowing from great people like Tom Burleson, who uh, wrote a lot about facades. And Shai Resnick. And Shai Resnick, of course, who has a lot of nice uh, video tutorials on highres.io, I guess. Is that right? Uh, no, I didn't want you to mention that, but I just want to say that I'm smart. But uh... <laughs> Of course. So uh, talk about more about the domain-driven design aspect. I'm curious about that. There was this book, it's about 20 years old, and it is somehow still a bestseller. And I really like this because if I think about my books, they are selling for two or three years and then I have to rewrite them because it's full of technical stuff. But somehow they managed to write a book that uh, provides value for several decades. And most people looking into this book say, hey, this book says you have to use a facade and you have to use entities and you have to use repositories and that's it. But the real interesting thing about domain-driven design is in the last chapters of this book. They are calling it strategic domain-driven design and strategic domain-driven design is mainly about subdividing a big application into subdomains. If you think about a traditional ERP system, you can subdivide it into accounting, into payroll accounting, into cost calculation, and all this other stuff you have in big companies. And then the idea is to model those subdomains separately, completely separately, so that one domain does not need to affect a lot of things of other domains. And first of all, this seems to be awkward, because you want to build one big system and nevertheless, you model the parts of the system separately. But at the end of the day, it turns out that this leads to less uh, intermingling. If you model everything separately, your parts are not that much intermingled with each other. And that means you don't have that much uh, references to each other and not that much dependencies. And this is one of the goals, one of the overall goals you have when you want to architect an application that can be maintainable in long term. Because if everything depends on everything else, then changing something is really difficult. I really like where you're going with this, Manfred. So how do we kind of bring this into the Angular world? How are you kind of advising your clients in terms of this domain-driven design and, and structuring applications. Are we talking about like modules or are we talking about multiple libraries using something like NX or what's kind of the solution that you are implementing? Yeah, so in theory, it could be everything. It could be a module, it could be a folder, but I really recommend using libraries because library, an NPM library, or to go one step further, a library within a monorepo provides a lot of advantages. And I think the biggest advantage is isolation. You cannot easily access everything within a library because normally a library has this public API thing. 
Then that's all uh, that's exported out of that library. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. The Noble uh, extensions call it the index.ts. And if you're using the Angular CLI, it's called the public API, mm-hmm. which is in turn also some kind of facade, which is just exporting what you want to give your consumers. Right. And just in turn, public API. You are not exporting can be changed by you all the time because the consumer does not know it. That's true. A public API file does end up being like a facade. That's I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, that. I haven't thought about that either. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That does make good sense. Yeah, I love the concept of clean APIs that are ignorant of kind of the world that surrounds them. I hate getting in projects where, like, I can click through eight different files and there's still more business logic. And you're like, really? Like, really? How is this a thing? Like, I hate that kind of code. I think that's an important thing because both is bad. Too many abstractions is bad. An interface for a class that is pointing to another interface where the implementation is pointing to another interface. And if you have too little abstractions, it is also bad because you cannot easily exchange something. And I really like what you're saying, Frosty, because in my opinion, it is just about finding the right the right weights, the right amount of indirections and abstractions. So let me ask you a question. As you're doing monorepo with nested library stuff, are you heavily, heavily leveraging like Narwhal's NX or are you just using like the CLI with libraries or are you using like an alternate solution for these monorepos? What's, what are you kind of approaching? So what I'm recommending today is using NX because it adds a lot of features to the CLI. But at the end of the day, you have a CLI project and it is not as heavyweight as other monorepo solutions. One of my favorite uh, features of NX is to restrict which library is allowed to access which other library. You can say, okay, this library is only allowed to access this other library, but not the other 15 libraries. This all makes sure that you don't end up with a highly coupled system where everything depends on everything else. You can specify that in NX? Yeah, they have that uh, tagging. Isn't that what it's called, Manfred? Yeah, yeah. You can define tags for your libraries. And then you can say a library right. with this stack is only allowed to access libraries with this and right. that and that stacks. So you can kind of lock it down within your organization, right? So you can say, if you want to use my library, like you have to make an agreement, right, of some sort. And then you enable that through this thing called tagging. Yeah, yeah. You are quite free when it comes to defining stacks. What That's I'm right. doing is I like to define DAX to assign each library to a column of my architecture as well as to a row. The column is the subdomain in terms of domain-driven design, and the row is a layer, like a layer that implements use cases with components or a layer with data access logic or a layer with utility functions. Can you give me a concrete example of that? I, I... Totally heard everything you just said, but like, it, can you kind of give me an example of that column and row and what, what those might actually be? Yeah. So if you think of an ERP system, the column would be the subdomain, for instance, accounting or payroll accounting or okay. cost calculation. And then, of course, you have to substructure each of those domains somehow. You have to substructure payroll accounting. And for this, I'm using layers. And the rule is that each layer is only allowed to access layers below it, but not layers above it. And one layer could be a feature layer, a layer with with smart components implementing some use cases. Another layer could be a layer with dump components or a layer with data access logic. And by restricting that each layer is only allowed to use layers below it, in rows below it, if you paint it down to a nice architectural picture, 
you also make sure that not everything is allowed to use everything else in terms of uh, loosely coupling. Okay. So you mentioned uh, the data access layer. That's one of the, I feel the most complicated thing uh, in the Angular and front-end in general uh, world. So let, let's talk about, if, if, you, if you can, talk about that or else anyone else has another question about the layer system and the row. But I'm curious to know, how do you solve that problem, state management? Like, um, do you use NGRX? Do you use any other solution and such? Is the question for me or general for the audience? Generally for you, but uh, I would, <laughs> because I already know what uh, Brian and Frosty are doing. But, you know. Uh, I know, okay? You know. I know. He knows everything. You yeah. don't know. I'm a like, ghost. You're looking. You're looking. My, my. He's no, looking. actually, I don't know what Brian is doing, but uh, <laughs> I, know what, <laughs> I know what you are doing. Frosty. I feel, sa- I feel safer. I know Frost. He's simple. Yeah, he's simple. He's just using RxJS. So it was directed towards you, Manfred. Mm-hmm. And that was the question. Okay, cool. So I think the first thing we have to figure out is do we even need a state management solution? There are projects that for sure need one, and there are other projects where a a state management solution would be an overkill. And if you have one of those state management or of, of, of those projects, it is completely okay to go without a state management solution. You are not a bad person if you don't have a state management library in your project. Oh, no? Uh, No, no. Uh, Some people say you are a bad person, but in my eyes, you are uh, still a nice person if you don't use NGRX or Akita or something like this. I have a client who spanked me always when I'm not using a state management solution. (laughs) So, uh, sorry. Okay. Okay. So, is he paying good for this? Uh, I, I'm paying, but uh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. So you don't have to use it if you have like a small application or something like that, but we're talking enterprise here, right? We're talking like big, big application. Yeah. So I would use a state management solution if uh, you have a lot of state and if the state needs to be used in a lot of different components, if one component uses state X and another component is also using state X and a third component is also using state X. This is for me the main reason to use a state management library. Because if each and every component is only using its own state, which it needs to remember in terms of routing back and forth, then a simpler approach would be also fitting like using a facade with a behavior subject or something like this. If you are not sure, and this is the most interesting part, because if you are sure you need it or not, then it is easy. Then you have immediately your solution. But if you are not sure if you need it or not, I am recommending to get started with a facade. And behind this facade, you can first of all just use a a behavior subject. And if you feel now it's time to use something more complex because the shared is more, the, the state is more shared, then you can easily introduce some state management solution behind this facade. Okay, so just for the listeners, a, a, a facade, what I know is when you combine a lot of uh, systems together under a single API, just like a jQuery, for example, is a facade, right? Can you give an example in that term, like how would a management facade like that would look like if you need one? Yeah. So I think the person who coined the term facade for this kind of service was Thomas Burleson. And he wrote a nice blog article about this. The facade in this, uh, in this situation is basically an Angular service, which provides everything you need for a use case. That means the component implementing the use case only needs to talk with this facade service, with this Angular service. It does not need to know what happens behind this facade 
It does not need to know if there is a state management solution, a very complex one or a very simple one or just a behavior subject. It does not need to know if we need to orchestrate six other services or just one other service. Because of this... about is the, the component itself. It, ha- it, it, it needs to remain ignorant to everything happening inside of the service. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so you can easily extend this facade. First of all, you can implement everything within the facade. And later, if you feel it's beneficial for your architecture, you could uh, just make the facade to delegate to a state management solution or to this and that other service. Nice. So basically it hides all the complexity and your component are talking with services that are designed for them, which hide the actual implementation behind them. So that way it doesn't matter which way you go. If you go the NGRX route or the Akita route or just plain old behavior subjects or even just like properties if you don't don't use ArcGIS. Um, yeah, so yeah, don't, don't. there's a, a real simple way to write a facade so that if you want to like have simple behavior subjects inside the facade, the component won't know. And then you can totally swap out that behavior subject for, you know, NGX store with entity and everything. And the, the facade API doesn't change at all, even though the implementation of the code is totally different. None of the consumers of the facade has to change, which is really, really powerful. Really nice. Right. I learned, mm. like the second that I saw Thomas write that blog, I was like, yeah, I, I was already kind of doing something like this, but Thomas put like some light on some, some of it that I hadn't really seen. And so I was able to start adding it more formally into apps and we could start with behavior subjects. And then when we're like, no, let's add the store here, the NGX, NGRX store, we could do that, but we didn't have to re- modify any of the components consuming it. So the way I look at it is, so I'm not sure if the facade is like the, the actual, the best term in that case. It sounds more like, uh, I don't know, a wrapper or an adapter, but it doesn't really matter because I was waiting for someone like you first day for someone to actually write that blog post or like define the like the pattern or something like that because for years I've been arguing that using a global store a global store or a global state everywhere is like an anti-pattern and we need to uh, to to chunk up our apps into pieces which all like know only like the next step and not like everything about the whole architecture of the application it's funny how someone like takes initiative and write a blog post and all of a sudden like everybody goes like yes that's what i've been saying for years and we just waited for someone to write that blog post which is great i'm I, and thomas by the way shout out to thomas one of the geniuses in our angular community so i love this guy uh but uh, anyway yeah so i'm totally agree this is a great great pattern to use I think people heard it when you said it. They just, they were waiting for someone like Thomas to say it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It's story of my life. Happens every time. Wait, who said that? <laughs> I? I mean, oh, Thomas said it? Never mind, never mind. Oh, now we get it. This okay. got serious. It's like writing tests. Like, uh, you remember Frosty when I told you to write tests and he said, nah, eh. nah. If so, I have time. So, so Thomas will write a blog post about it and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then he will be. <laughs> oh, Thomas, Tess. All right, I'm in. Let's do but, it. By the way, Manfred, I'm curious about uh, if we're on a subject of uh, tests, what's your take on, on that and, and like dealing with, again, large-scale applications and, and clients who sometimes don't, don't have, like, I don't know, the motivation to, to write them or the budget or the you know, management uh, approval and stuff like that? Yeah, good question. So I think, uh, meanwhile, also a lot of management divisions have found out that writing tests is important, especially if you want to have a sustainable application, because if it is a write-once application, then you don't need any test. But if you have to modify it, 
and this is normally the case, then you have to make sure that your modification does not destroy something that already worked. Question I am always asking is, how do you sleep? How do you sleep if you know you have to change this very aspect of your application? Do you sleep well or do you have nightmares because you know that something else will break that has not directly something to do with this part you changed? Yeah, my friend Gil Tayar, also a speaker and works at a, also at a testing company, I like refer to it as the, sh- I think, shaking meter like how much your hand shakes before you push the code or something like that. Ah, nice. I like it. Yeah. So that was a, that was a level five shake meter. (laughs) That can be, that was a level five. What's your approach in terms of like, uh, let's say the, I don't know, uh, unit tests versus uh, integrated tests and stuff like that. Yeah, different customers see this in a different way. But if they ask me, I would say start with unit tests. Make sure that your tiny units, your components, your services are doing what they are supposed to do. And uh, don't get led by desk coverage. It is not a good goal to uh, say, hey, we need to have a desk coverage of X, Y, Z percent. Think about what can break if I change something and write a test that assures that if you break something, the test will tell you. Of course, the test coverage is a good tool, but mainly for finding out what shall else be tested and not for reaching a goal. I'm preferring unit tests because, um, in my opinion, they are more stable. End-to-end test is never that stable than a unit test. But at the end of the day, you need both. You need the unit tests that make sure that the units works, and you need an end-to-end test that makes sure that the overall system works. But I think because an end-to-end test is not that stable, you should go with more unit tests and with a very little amount of end-to-end tests. Hey! Are you working on a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full-stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Have you guys ever used uh, Protractor Flake? No, I've never even heard of it. Nope. I'm on a project right now. It's called Protractor Flake because you know how sometimes tests, to your point, Manfred, the the end-to-end tests can be flaky, right? Like. Mm. Maybe they'll pass 50% of the time. You know, you know what I'm saying? And sometimes it's like some weird timing issue or whatever. But if you run it a second time, it will, it will pass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. People don't really like these end-to-end tests because if they run and they have failures, it's like, well, do I even believe the failures anymore? So the project I'm on, they use Protractor Flake that it will rerun only the failed ones like up to four or five times. And then as they pass, it takes them out of the queue. And they almost always pass. They, I, I don't think Protractors is as flaky as some people think it is. I've, I've figured out a ways to make these end-to-end tests run pretty reliably. But, but in the case where it's timed out for some silly reason and you can't make it stop, it'll fail and then Flake goes, all right, let me try it again. And try it again. If it yeah. passes that time, then you're like, okay, I'm good. So these guys are using... Protractor Flake, and it's uh, interesting. Awesome, to be honest, like it's pretty sweet. It allows you to get a lot of things tested with just one end-to-end test, and not have to worry about the flakiness as much. Huh. You know, interesting. First of all, thanks for sharing. I didn't know that too. Second, just to to add to what Manfred said. Uh, so I'm with you. Like I'm teaching testing from like the class testing, isolated class testing level. 
this is what I do on uh, test angular and um and then I move towards more like dome testing and then integrated testing and stuff like that. Another thing I want to add to to what you said is uh, alongside testing the API is also uh, using like the test as a design tool. So when you mock out stuff, when you do isolation testing, you're actually designing the next level API. So for for example, we talked about facades. So let's say you write a test for your component and you mock out the facade you need for that component. And then you end up, when you finish your test, you end up with the API, the true API you need for that facade and not just trying to make up stuff that some component might need in the future, uh, which is you end, uh, the Yagni rule, right? right the, you ain't going to need it. You're going to need um, it. So, so that's another... <laughs> so that's another benefit that I see in like isolated testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it the same way. It is some kind, as you say, of design tool. It is like painting around some diagrams, but uh, in a way that compiles and that provides additional values in terms of preventing regression. Yeah. What are the like the common mistakes you you see people are doing with their angular architecture again especially for mid size and and large size large scale uh, apps So one thing is really to have too much coupling to not separate parts of the applications and I really understand it because sometimes it's tempting to just reuse something that's already there but at the end of the day if one use case only needs three fields of a class and another use case needs three other fields of that class, perhaps it is more wise to separate it in order to prevent coupling. Another thing I'm seeing quite often is uh, that people are over-architecting. It is also a mistake I have done. I'm always saying I've written the worst applications. I had the worst architectures shortly before I concentrated on architecture and shortly after I concentrated on the architecture topic. With concentrating, I mean learning about software architecture. Because before, my products have been uh, under-engineered and after it, they have been over-engineered. And both is not good. Because, as you can imagine, if they are under-engineered, you have too much coupling. If they are over-engineered, you have too much indirections and no one can find out what the code is actually doing. And this is something I'm also seeing quite often. How do you find a sweet spot? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. No, no. (laughs) That's what I asked, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) No, you take it. Say it again. (laughs) That's okay. But I think if you want to find a sweet spot, it is really important to know your architectural goals. Sometimes it's really too hard to answer the question, what are the architectural goals? Some people are saying, yeah, it has to be fast and user-friendly and it has to be secure. But those are not really architectural goals because the question is, what does fast mean for you? And also, what does secure mean for you? And so you have to break it down to something you can measure, and then you have to bring it into a list, into an ordered list. Only then you can evaluate this ordered list against several approaches, architectural approaches. Do you still hear me? Because Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, we're just in shock. We're in we shock. Have... So how do you measure something like code cleanness, if that's a word? Like, you know, uh, because you talked about like loosely coupled and tightly coupled um, stuff like in in your architecture. How do you like put that on that list? Like, uh, I don't want the sweet spot between that because this is like modularity, basically. So, of course, there are some metrics uh, for this uh, metrics that are just taking into account uh, how many outgoing references I have and how many incoming references I have. But I'm not a big fan of those metrics. It is somehow academic. It is good to torture students, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not that a big fan of 
<laughs> you just uh, said it's good to torture students. I'm just saying. Uh, okay. So this, this will be the quote from this episode. Said. Yeah. That's so can said. we remove this from this podcast? I nope. think I no, no editing. No, no, I think it stays. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <This> okay. <laughs> we could. <laughs> okay. So uh, what, what I like more is to look at all your interactions and discuss about do we need it? Do we really need this interaction? How likely is it that this part of the application will change afterwards? And if you say, yeah, you are right, it is not that likely that it will change afterwards, then perhaps the interaction is not worth the effort. At least it is not worth the effort now. This is also something you said before, Shai. Sometimes a good architecture, it is, it's good because it allows you to introduce additional stuff later when you really see that you need it. And uh, in order to make this work, you need tests that tell you later that you have not broken everything by introducing another la layer of interactions. Yeah, so just for our listeners, the interaction, like an example for that will be uh, like an events sourcing, like CQRS or something like that. Just like uh, something like NGRX, where you put like an event out there and you expect it uh, to react to some side effect from that event. But it's not direct. You don't see like the direct implication. You just like any anyone in the system can like throw this event and you need to track down like the effect of, of it. It's not just NGRX, but it's any like event mechanism you know when you dispatch an event and something happens indirectly so this is the indirection like an example for that right yeah totally someone said i think it was a member of the ngrx team ngrx is mainly an interaction framework and if you need those interactions then it is fine then ngrx is a beautiful framework but if you don't need interactions it is not a good idea to introduce them just because, just because you've learned it, just because you want to be one of the cool kids. <laughs> so don't get me wrong. I'm not uh, argumenting against NGRX. I'm just saying use it uh, when you need it and make sure you need it and only then use it or introduce it step by step, which is also possible. That's a great point, and and I'm really happy to to hear to hear that. Like um, we had an episode with uh, Victor Sapkin from Nawal, and because Nawal, uh, it's one of the tools in the tool chain is NGRX, uh, the recommended tools, and we talked a bit about that, and and we said I, I said that stuff that I like the most about like NGRX is that it's a pattern. So you could teach it in, a, in the same way and people could follow the rules, which is a good thing, especially in large teams. And there are other like downsides, like in direction, for example, which I think is a, is a downside when you don't need it. So I was curious to, to hear your, your point. I'm, I'm gathering, I'm trying to gather uh, like statistics on who thinks what about like always using, you know, the same thing or applying, uh, you know, uh, considerations to when, when to use it, when do you need it. And your point about interaction is, is a very smart one. Like, ask yourself, do I need, like, I have a downside with interaction. Uh, it will be harder to debug. It will harder, be harder to follow the code. I will need to do a lot of, you know, searches in my code base to find out who responds to this uh, event or to this action and stuff like that. So know the downsides before you decide on, okay, we're going to adopt an indirection solution. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So at the end of the day, software architecture is for me a cost-benefit calculation. And of course, if the benefits are bigger than the costs, then let's go with it. But Otherwise, perhaps we should not introduce it now, perhaps later, but not now. You know, I think that like the whole NZRX team has the same answer, which is use it when you need it, but you don't always need it. And 
I've even heard Mike on this podcast, Mike has said, Mike Ryan, one of the team lead members is, has said, um, you probably don't need it unless you're in this scenario. And he, and he kind of describes mm-hmm. the scenario. So I think generally people agree, like even the, the MGRX team are agreeing with Manfred's take. And I think that the, the people like me or Victor are probably wrong where we're like, always yeah. use this thing, you know? Where Victor's like always use the store, and I'm like always be use behavior subjects, you know. Like, no, I you are that, probably wrong. Victor is right because it's he's Victor. Victor, no, you can't be <laughs> on on the extremes. You can't be right, and yeah, so that's yeah, that's agree. kind of. Uh, and I think most people are agreeing with what Manfred's saying, which is, I think, validating for people who are listening and like, man, what do I do? I I, I hear state management. Why are people making such a fuss about where they put an array of things? But it is, it matters. And, and a lot of people are confused because it is, it's new and it's hard. But I think if you follow what Manfred's advice here, yeah, until you need something more advanced and do something else, I think, I think that's really good, um, really good advice. I see a common problem where you say, you say to people, you tell people, hey, use it when you need it, which is very generic, right? It's very, and, and for people who are yeah. just coming into Angular, they don't have enough experience to know, okay, yeah, this like, is where I need it, right? Yeah, you, you don't even know how to gauge your need. You're like, exactly. Oh, I have to write some code and I can't even gauge the need of either of these options. So exactly. That's that's I why to tell me. Exactly. That's why I don't really love to tell like, you know, newcomers, let's say. Uh, use the right tool for the right job because they don't know the tools yet and they don't know the jobs. So it's kind of vague. That, that's what I've been told when I was starting out and I was like always, what the hell are you telling me? Like, what do I do with that? That's why I say like the key word here for people who are interested in, in this is indirection. Okay, understand what indirection is, study it, and then you'll know the benefits and the costs for that. And then you know maybe to, even if you choose the solution, to know you in the back of your head, like, okay, let's measure it like in six months and see if we are in the right place or not. And try to use stuff like facades or adapters to shield you from bad architectural decisions. That way, even if you chose the wrong, let's say, tool for the job that you needed, you can still save your, you know, application, okay, in, a, in an easier way than if you are coupling everything together. So learn about indirection, adapters, the facade, uh, the to- uh, the blog post by Thomas uh, Berlusson, and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Well, I don't want to turn this into a state management show, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I do that every time, so I'm going to shut up and let Manfred. <laughs> uh, by the way, Manfred, you said that there, there was another mistake, and I uh, cut you off talking about uh, the indirection stuff. but. Uh, you said that there's another mistake, common mistake people are doing with architecture? Oh, yeah. Um, something I'm seeing is uh, that people tend to write very chatty applications, applications that uh, are sending thousands of requests to the backend. And, of course, this will obviously influence your performance in a bad way. And perhaps you don't see it at first because you test it locally and everything is smooth, and then you put it into production, and then you see, okay, uh, with these network connections, it is really a disadvantage if I have to do all those network requests. Yep, I agree. That's a hard one because, like, when I've worked with teams, sometimes they're, they, they, the teams are organized in front-end, back-end separation, so the back-end team isn't the same guy writing the code as the front-end, the same person, sorry, and the front end team ends up feeling like their hands are tied. And so they end up writing, like they end up making four or two or three backend calls when they should be able to say to the backend team, Oi, give me a Put different- it all together. Oi. Oi. One thing I try and coach teams on when I work with them is I, t- I teach them the word for what that is. And that word is it's an affordance. So anytime you write additional code to mask a weakness somewhere else, that's called an affordance. And 
the most common affordance, at least for front-end developers, is when there's a piece of functionality that should happen on the server, but we code it up on the front-end. And Hmm. these affordances go largely hidden at companies where you only have one front-end, meaning you don't have an Android and an iOS and a web app. You You only have one web app. Either you're able to, and irresponsibly so, you're able to make all these affordances for weaknesses and shortcomings in your backend. But when you work at a company that has an Android app and an iOS app and maybe some console, Windows console apps and a web app, now all of a sudden, if you make an affordance, the other apps are all going to have to make the same affordance. So you're actually costing the company a ton of money by not reappropriating that responsibility back to the backend. And the result is chatty applications, which is what Manfred's saying. So I realize developers don't always have control to fix these bad and, and shortcomings in their in their APIs. So I just teach them the words affordance so that they can throw they can use those words with their manager and say, Hey, this is an affordance that shouldn't exist in the front end. It should exist on the back end. I'm making it, but ultimately the code belongs over there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And when you teach it like that, then the team has a little bit more power to push back and get their APIs redesigned. But I agree with Manfred. I see this all the time, and it's 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 not cut and dry on how you deal with it, though. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah, totally. And then it depends upon who has the power. In some companies, the front-end people have more power. And in other companies, it is mostly the case in traditional companies, banks, insurances, the backhand people have the power because they are protecting what uh, the company is good at, namely the business rules. And they are most of the time implemented on the server side. Yeah, that's, that's, I've seen the same kind of thing. And it's just, you have to embrace the chaos sometimes, unfortunately. And fortunately for Angular apps, we have RxJS makes all this mayhem pretty simple. It's like, switch mapping between two or three calls mm-hmm. easier than it used to be with promises, but still these affordances are ugly. And if you're to rate the app, just based on how many network requests it makes, you're going to end up with the lowest score. And there's, unless you can get management to listen, you're going to have a underperforming app and there's not a lot you can do about it. Right. Yeah. And performance isn't the only thing, right? I mean, most oftentimes it makes sense to put this business logic on the server, right? The server code can't be modified by the client, can't be, you know, you can trust what's usually executing on a server versus a client. We really shouldn't be trusting that always. And so it's too bad because I've seen the same thing where you have these really chatty applications and you end up doing a lot of business logic and enforcement of, of rules and validation on the client. And the server is just basically kind of like a dumb server that's just, you want this? Here you go. You know, or you want to modify this? Okay, great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a CRUD JSON, but it's not doing any advanced server things that you need. Yeah. And that's where that synergy really has to come into play at an enterprise, right? We're working with the backend team and the front-end team and saying, hey, how do we do this the right way? But that's challenging. Yeah. I've seen that. A lot of companies, affordances are the culture. Like, that's just how they write their app. And so when you end up writing affordances, you're code size can double. I mean, yeah. most of the time it will double at least because to group things with code versus grouping them with a SQL statement, it takes like three or four times more code right. SQL, you know? And so by making multiple requests over the network and then grouping the objects as they should have been when you got them, your bundle is just growing. And so when you have, you know, 15 developers all writing affordances every day, for a year, two years, three years, your bundle size is bloated. And most right. of them live on the server anyway. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, and you're shipping that code down to your client every day. The you know, user comes into their office and opens up your app. All right. So we're kind, of, we're kind of at time here. So, Manfred, is there any other gems you want to share with the, uh, with the listeners? Boy, good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think not, no. So... For anyone who's out there, um, Manfred's been a huge resource for me. Like, I just message him and he's like, hello, and he, he helps me out. He's crazy helpful. So if you have any questions, go follow his blogs, follow him on Twitter because he, he shares a lot of really high-quality content. He's also really helpful if you ever need him. 
let's say someone wanted to kind of engage you maybe for some training or some some other sort of consulting. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Manfred? One way is to just use Twitter. Another way would uh, be to use my website. There is a nice contact form. And then, uh, yeah, we are in touch and we can talk about the next steps. What's your website and what's your Twitter account? Uh, the Twitter account is just my name, Manfred Steyer. And the website is currently uh, a website with a German domain. It is Software Architect, like the English word Software Architect, but with an K and not with an C, uh, .at for Austria. I know I have to change it to something that's more international because I'm doing several stuff in other countries, but, you know, their own website projects are the projects that last the longest time because yeah. you get to do it. A year ago, I started Hero Devs and I put up a coming soon page for our website. Is it still there? It's still there. We've been, we've been so busy that our website uh. still has the coming soon. At least it doesn't say under construction. Yeah, no, I mean, it may say under construction underneath the coming soon. I get you. I, I feel you on that one, Manfred. Okay, well, we appreciate you came on. Um, let's do let's do some picks before we end. Brian or Shai, do you guys want to you guys want to throw a pick out there? Go ahead, Shai. Oh, thank you, Brian. I was about to say go ahead, Brian. But yeah, I will start. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so I have one pick. So I'm going to, I don't know if I uh, said it already in the other episodes, but uh, I'm going to reopen my uh, testing course soon. It's going to be on testangular.com and it's going to be a free workshop uh, leading up to, uh, to, to the basics course, the Angular testing basics course. So uh, you want to sign up on testangular.com to, to don't, not miss it. The last time I did it was on January and I closed it and up until now. So in October, it's going to be open again. That's my first pick. And my second pick is Netflix show called Hip Hop Evolution. If you're a fan of, uh, of hip hop and rap music, that's a must show. It's really, really like did a good research on the roots and origins of hip hop and uh, very, very cool show to watch so hip-hop evolution hmm. those are my picks thank you be love cool i've been following along with the typescript 3.7 milestone and there's some really cool things coming out with typescript 3.7 so i'll put a blog post that i recently read uh down into the the notes here and certainly take a look at some of the stuff that's coming up in typescript so pretty exciting uh Name things one. that they've Name got one. So uh, there's a couple of them, but one of them is null coalescing, right? Oh, so yeah. do you know, like when you do like, say you want like a default value of something, you do like, you know, a const first name equals like value, maybe the user provides, and then you do space and then, or like, you know, two pipes space and then some default value or whatever, like a placeholder, right? Right. But if that default value gets set to a falsy value, and falsy values are things like actual false, right, or an empty string or zero, it'll actually default to the, it'll go to the default value because it sees that first value and it goes, oh, that's falsy. Let me do that or and actually go to the default, right, when you didn't explicitly want that. It's actually coming down in JavaScript. I think it's a stage three proposal. So there's going to be a new syntax where you're going to use uh, double question marks, right? So you're going to do that same like const first name equals value, but then instead of two pipe symbols, right? So that like, or you're going to do question mark, question mark, and then you're going to do your default value. And it's going to say the difference there is it's only if it's null or undefined, then it'll go to the default value. But if you explicitly set that to an empty string or to zero or some other falsy value, it'll use that first falsy value. So that's one of the kind of the first things that I saw that I was like, oh, that's really cool. And that's bit me a couple of times in the past. So they're still working on it. It's not finalized, but I've been kind of following along. Uh, and it's exciting to see some of the new features that are be coming down the pipe. That's cool, man. Doesn't CoffeeScript already have that? Oh, geez, CoffeeScript. Uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I actually wrote CoffeeScript like, oh, my gosh, it was don't, like four years ago. I'm not, don't be a hater. Don't be no, a hater. I'm not hating. No, I'm not hating. I'm just like... 
I don't know if it was the best decision at the time. A lot of the cool stuff from JavaScript only came because CoffeeScript proved it out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing I didn't like about CoffeeScript was it was like um, Python, where like it was all based on like block in- indentation, right? Is that right? If I recall, yeah, like, white space. Drop, it was yeah. all what? Yeah, you could drop all the brackets and everything. It was cool at the time, but no, I haven't written CoffeeScript it, in a long. It was time. innovative. It was. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, truly. I thought it was. <laughs> so, I'm, the side I'm gonna... remark. <laughs> what? The, the, I thought it was. Well, anyway, anyway, I anyway. thought it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, uh, are you writing CoffeeScript today, Frosty? No. No. Okay. Yeah. I was just trolling. That's part of the job as the host, one of the panelists, bro. Of course. Okay. But also respecting. I was respectful trolling because CoffeeScript did give us a lot of cool stuff. It did. It did. Yeah, that was serious. Tip of the hat. All right. So pick. Jennifer Waddell picked this a little while ago. And so I looked into it and I have to agree. So I'm going to pick Taylor Swift's album Lover. It's pretty cool. Go listen to it. Your kids will think you're cool for listening to it. My kids think I'm awesome because I'm down with this new Tay Tay album. So go check out Taylor's new album. My next pick is we didn't do a very good job at all advertising this, but we actually did the world's first RxJS conference a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. Yeah, how was that? It was good. It was it was called RxJS Live for people who um, didn't know about it. You go to rxjs.live is the website. So we're currently getting the talk videos kind of put together with like an intro video and an outro video and like syncing the audio with the screen capture and stuff. So the videos will be up shortly, but I, it was really, really successful. Awesome. We had react with RxJS, with anything with RxJS. We had just animations with RxJS, like, so no frameworks, just, just code with RxJS. We had a lot of really good, just like deep dives on RxJS. Tracy gave a really, a really good, like, Hey, like she distinct, she, she gave some distinctions between the many different operators. Like, Hey, this group of five operators, they're blah operators. I was like, Oh, I'd never called them that before. So Tracy gave a really good talk. Ben gave a good history of RxJS talk. I didn't know there's more downloads of RxJS than React, Angular, and Vue combined right now. So holy cow. RxJS is big and it's used by like, it's on YouTube. It's on a lot of. A lot of things and so Netflix, I would assume. Yeah, Netflix is using it. RX is just is just big. Everyone needs to know. We should be diving in and helping teach each other more. And so I just I'm just gonna pick RXJS Live for what it meant as the first all RXJS conference. I, I think that, that's cool. I think in five or six years observables will be so popular and RXJS will be it won't be ubiquitous yet, but it will be a lot more well known than it is right now. So. I have to say one thing. So a few episodes uh, a while back, we talked about RxJS, and, and you said, I think it was um, with, uh, I don't remember now, but uh, you said uh, to watch your uh, Twitch episode about RxJS, how you implement uh, RxJS edit to a project. And I saw that, and it was really great. And one thing uh, that I really, really liked about it was you demonstrated real good uh, reactivity. Let's say you change one mm-hmm. property. And so basically what you showed, you didn't call it that, but this is like what what like it was. It was computed values, right? So yeah. you change yeah. one value and all of the others are being like automatically compute, like calculated by that change. Oh. So uh, the change uh, chain, let's say. That was really, really great uh, demonstration of the, the power of RxJS and the use cases yeah. you would need that. So that changed my mind a, a little bit about uh, Rx. And uh, oh, so great. thank you for that. That was a fun Twitch. They're really fun. And I've, I've reworked it a couple of times. And it's actually a really successful training that I give often. And it does a really good job. Like You have no idea how big of a compliment it is to have you say that, Shai, just because because it wasn't complicated, right? Like it was pretty simple. Yeah. If that kind of a thing can teach someone like you, like that's a compliment to me. Like, cause it's, it is a hard concept. And if you can, if something that simple is like, Hey, shy, who's really smart, 
this helped him get over this, the idea of some of these things, like it helped him through it, then that's what I'm aiming for. Because for me, learning how to reactive code was probably the hardest thing I had to learn in the last two or three years. So thank you. But yeah, um, I'm glad that you clarified the computer properties thing. I'm going to have to work that into the next time I give that, that uh, conversation. Yeah, that, that was basically, so I, I've been saying for a, lot, a long time, like how Mobix is a great, great solution. And if we could have something like that in Angular, it will be much, much easier than yeah. having to know what switch map is. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But, but, uh, but we don't. Maybe with Ivy, we'll have a way with render, right? The render function, render component, something like that. But currently, the way to do it is with RxJS. And you showed a really, really simple and great example on how to do that, how to do computed values, which saves you a lot, a lot of like code. So much yeah. code. Yeah. Uh, People so ask me, they're like, Frost, why do you say you write less code with Rx? And I'm like, I rewrote some functionality and the pull requests are dramatic. When you combine reactive programming with RX, it's just like fugazi. It's just, it's crazy. So anyway, we should do a whole podcast about that topic. I would love to do a podcast about the value of RX. That'd be fun. All right, so let's move on to Manfred. Do you have some picks, Manfred? Yeah, uh, you gave me a hard time because now I had just three minutes to uh, find something. But yeah, I have some. The first thing is the most important one, if you ask me. It is something the whole world was uh, waiting for. Namely, there will be a new Star Trek show. I'm really a big fan of Star Trek. Star Trek Picard. It seems to be not more of the same, but something different. And that's why I'm really excited about this. Another thing is I've discovered this nice library. Uh, it's called NGRX, etc. It allows you to write reducers in a mutable way. At least it looks like mutable code. But at the end of the day, your mutable code is just recorded and replayed in an immutable way. So you have all the benefits of immutables, but you can use your traditional programming style, which is uh, quite nice. That is nice. That's cool to check it out. Cool. Well, Manfred, again, I think for all of us, I speak when we say thanks for coming on. You know, you're one of my heroes. And so I, I enjoyed the chance to get on here and chat with you and always absorb more from you. So thanks for coming on. And to the other panelists, Shy, Brian, thanks for coming. And to the listeners, thank you. And we'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. Adventures in Angular is a devchat.tv production made in partnership with Hero Devs. Hero Devs is a group of Angular experts who can help your team code like true developer heroes. If your team needs an Angular expert, reach out to Aaron at hero.dev today. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.